Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth bringing you quality hunting clothing and packs at a price you deserve. Check them out at huntworthgear.com. Right now, they still have their winter clearance event going on all the way through this weekend, February 12th. 20 to 50% off, even the heat boost. So, fun story about uh, what kind of company Huntworth is. Uh, I had a guy, Nathan Powers, reach out to me on Instagram just asking about the fitment of the clothes. He's like, I think I want to order one of the heat boost jackets. Uh, good sale going on. Ordered one. The FedEx guy didn't get the memo, left it where it wasn't supposed to be left, and his dog completely chewed it up. He called Huntworth and said, hey, this is a story. I know you guys don't have to do anything, but can you help me out? No questions asked. They sent him another one. So when we choose what companies we're going to work with, and uh, Huntworth is going to be uh, working with us again this year, that's what we're looking for. Not only do we want uh, a good company, a good relationship, 
good gear, uh, but the people behind it. And I think that that speaks volumes. Uh, so I just wanted to share that. Uh, Nathan reached out and he said, you're not going to believe this. Please let the Huntworth people know. Uh, maybe you can use this on your intro. So I told him that I totally would do that. And, uh, you know, I couldn't come up with a, a better uh, example of uh, the kind of people over there at Huntworth. But today's podcast. So have you ever wondered what it takes to manage a deer herd? Like, is there actual uh, lobby dollars and insurance companies involved in making these regulations? Why do they make gun season so long here in Michigan? Why do we have uh, muzzleloader season now, just the second gun season? All these questions uh, and some other hard questions we asked to today's guest and uh, Chad Stewart answers them all and uh, best he can. Obviously, he's an employee of the Michigan DNR, so he's got to be a little bit uh, political, I guess. Try to give like you know um, answers, but I would say uh, there's some really great information in here, and it gives a little insight onto how. Uh, the information is used and what they're really using it for. So um, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode, whether you're from Michigan or not. There's a, it's just a good um, way to kind of look into how they manage a deer herd. So uh, for your Patreons, I sent out a, kind of a big announcement uh, through Patreon the other day. Uh, more information to come uh, this week, probably Friday. And on top of that, we're going to be finally getting around to our Patreon giveaways. So uh, that Huntworth gear, uh, that bow with the red dot sight on it, uh, Zinger, Spartan Forge, all the things, Lucky Buck. Uh, we're going to get to that. We're going to announce that live from the outdoor show in Harrisburg, flying out tomorrow. And yeah, so I got to get this out and get packed and on the road. So without any further ado... Thank you so much for listening. Leave us a comment on what do you think about the answers that Chad gave and enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, Adam back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. John is still in the Keys uh, fishing, so uh, hopefully we'll get him back here shortly, but uh, still not a bad place to be. Uh, Today we're talking with uh, Chad Stewart. Uh, he's a biologist with uh, the Michigan DNR. He is a deer, elk, and moose specialist. And we're going to try and extrapolate this out, not just to Michigan, uh, but kind of talk about uh, herd management um, across the board um, and how uh, that relates to all white deer, white-tailed deer herds, uh, as well as things that we can do as hunters um, to kind of help, you know, in our own way, even if as the Michigan guys will say, like, we don't agree with the DNR. Um, and I'm sure T- Chad gets that on a daily basis. So, um, how are you doing tonight, Chad? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. It's hourly basis sometimes. So, yeah. So is this a, a, a busy time of year right now because you've collected all the data or is it uh, kind of starting to wind down? Uh, no, actually think things ramp up at this time of year. Um, so not only do we, you know, get out of our, our deer season, which at least in Michigan ends, you know, in January, you know, I know a lot of other States, you know, especially down South might go a little bit longer. Um, 
but we no sooner get out of there, but we're trying to crunch numbers, evaluate what's going on with the last season. We're also trying to develop, you know, whatever recommendations might look like for the coming year, especially if we're in a regulation year, like we are here in Michigan. So it's, it's a lot of fast paced sort of taking old data, crunching numbers, maybe developing it into trend data. So maybe not just last year, but what happened over the past couple of years and then turning it around and trying to evaluate which direction we're trying to move with management and, and trying to, again, use the data that we have to defend our management recommendations, you know, moving forward. So it's, it's a lot of information gathering conversations, sort of evaluations leading into a recommendation development. Okay. So um, if we could just get a little bit of history on you for um, like, your your job kind of like what it entails and like your schooling and everything that it took you know to get to the position that you're in right now um yeah i uh so you know i i grew up you know hunting and fishing i actually grew up in pennsylvania um you know huge outdoor state i grew up in an outdoor family um you know tons of fishing opening day hunting season dove hunting was a big one turkey hunting all that sort of stuff um, and then, you know, as I'm going through like high school, I'm like, man, it would be really cool to, you know, just work with animals like wildlife, you know, as a job, um, went to Penn state university and got a degree in what's called wildlife and fishery sciences that sort of primes you for that sort of career. Um, you know, took a couple of like little technician type positions, um, got myself into a graduate school project working on, uh, researching, uh, deer and what we call deer herbivory or deer browsing. So basically the deer impact on, you know, the, the forest and, and re- tree regeneration from uh, the university of Illinois. So spent a couple of years in Illinois. Uh, after that worked my way into a, I guess my first full-time job was actually with uh, what's called now the Smithsonian conservation biology Institute in Virginia, uh, like Northern Virginia, mostly studying uh, assisting doing the field uh, oversight and, you know, overseeing the technicians for research. That was again, focused mostly on, mostly on white-tailed deer. Um, but there were some, uh, international wildlife conservation projects as well. So I got to do some, uh, different international travel, um, you know, in Asia. And then from there, I got my first, what I would call full-time permanent job, uh, in Indiana as their statewide deer biologist. Actually, it started off as a research biologist and in a year transferred into the statewide management biologist. Spent about eight years there before moving up to Michigan. Uh, and I've been here, I think, a little over eight years also. So, um, you know, the recent history has been about 16 years, um, you know, managing deer in the Midwest between Indiana and Michigan. Okay. So, um, you know, this year, in uh, if you go back i don't know probably like 2018 19 like and listen to one of our podcasts we are just ripping on the michigan dnr um based on i'm just full transparency here um it's okay you know coming from uh, hunting out of state with uh um mandatory check-ins and uh the the way that deer the deer herd is managed for like one buck in say ohio or you know when you look at michigan and and a lot of this you know there's um i don't know the easy like low-hanging fruit type data where you can look and you can say how many 
you know, Boone and Crockett bucks come out of the surrounding states of Michigan. Um, and then everybody complains about everything without, uh, diving into like the details, uh, surrounding that or any of the actual management. Everybody just likes to complain and it doesn't matter. I, I mean, I feel like whatever state you're in, people complain. You know, it's 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 part of the thing. I think Michigan, because there's so many hunters and there's such a rich tradition, um, it's just a a louder voice. <laughs> I don't know. And then we we run in these circles where it's an echo chamber, and we're listening to the same. We're seeing the same people say the same thing over and over again, and, and you just kind of gets like indoctrinated into you. And so now this year, Michigan implemented an app um, for like a mandatory deer harvest. Um, what went into that and like, what was the actual process in the years prior for compiling the data versus what we've moved into now? Yeah, that's a good question. So Michigan's always been kind of unique in how it estimates its deer harvest, right? So, uh, and that's because Michigan is it's a bigger agency. So we have, you know, a few more resources than, you know, a state like Indiana or Iowa or even Ohio, you know, those are, those are pretty small wildlife management agencies because like you said, we have a lot more hunters. So more hunters, you know, comes more funding, which means our, our, our agencies a little, you know, able to be staffed a little bit, you know, greater. Um, our, our estimate, our harvest estimate for years has been what we call a postseason harvest survey. So, um, we we send out a questionnaire to uh, a random subset of hunters so not everybody gets it everybody can fill out like an online version but you know the 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 ones that i say mostly count uh get a mail in mail in survey and we ask questions about uh hunter success hunter attitudes where you hunted what you hunted with like you name it that really sort of pieces the puzzle together and the way that they do this or the reason why they do this is because the information that comes back is an estimate. And that estimate has what we call a confidence interval around it. So basically, you know, we, we shot 390,000 deer plus or minus 20,000, you know, there's a range there that that's our confidence interval. Um, and that's a little different than a lot of other States that do harvest reporting. And this is sort of where, um, this is where the devil is in the details. Um, a lot of states do a harvest reporting and, and sometimes I think, and I don't want to assume too much, but I think from a lot of hunters perspectives, if you're reporting that deer individually, um, you, you have a completely accurate count. Uh, and what happens is a lot of states, not every state, but a lot of states don't have an estimate of what we call non-compliance. So, you know, the assumption is that, hundred percent of the deer are getting reported. Well, you know, probably enough hunters that they're not going to report their harvest and that's just how it works, which isn't necessarily a problem. If that level of non-compliance stays the same every year, you know, if you're, if you only see 80% of the deer or 40% of the deer, and you know that that's what it is every year, you can still develop trend data and see changes, you know, whether it's in a County or in a, in a state, you know, over time, because that non-compliance doesn't change. But if that non-compliance changes, say, say the DNR makes a decision that people just hate and they're just like, you know what, 
I'm just not going to report my deer this year and I'm going to really show them. Um, that could lead to what I would call like a faulty interpretation of the data because you went from say 80% compliance rate to say 65% compliance rate. And that, that's going to tell you a different story if you assume that that 65 was 80 like it was before. Um, so that's why I think it's important that agencies and that's something that we are going to do is, you know, continue to like sort of correct and make sure that those numbers are the same. So we have a basis for comparison. And then the reason why we shifted from, sorry, I'm kind of going all over here. Adam, so apologize. But the reason why we shifted from the uh, postseason like harvest survey to what a lot of states do, which is the harvest reporting piece right now, is that our survey responses have been declining. So 20 years ago, we would get three out of four surveys back. And when you get that number back, you know, you know what your confidence intervals are. They're a little bit tighter and you have a little bit more confidence. But now, before we started this this year, this year, um, our last survey was below 40%. So we can still generate an estimate, but our confidence interval around that estimate is a lot broader, which means our level of uncertainty with that estimate is a lot greater. So we made the switch this year um, because of those declining trends, also in part because we have a new um, licensed sales vendor that offered this service with that bid that we now have to, to collect this data. So there was a little bit of, um, I guess, contract contractual stuff that allowed us to do this now. But we have a lot more faster data now. Um, you know, we have data in in mid season, which we've never had before. The downside with the, the postseason harvest survey is, I couldn't tell you how many deer were harvested in a deer season until probably the following May or June, and that makes it really challenging from a, a regulations development perspective. That you're almost a year behind all the time, um, so that makes it really really tough. So this will, this will be some improvement now, um, and now we'll continue to do these surveys to that we've always done to sort of correct, like the, the like understand the relationship between this new technique and the old technique, um, but also to understand compliance moving forward. And then hopefully, you know, the, in in the next two or three years, we'll understand like what that compliance level is, especially once it starts to plateau, and then the numbers that we get throughout the season will 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 mean a lot more. And we'll have a lot better understanding of what's going on. So I know As we're, long- yeah, you, you know, we're, we're coming right on the tail end of our season. I don't know if it's too soon for you to kind of take a look at it, but um, do you think that this year's harvest data is, I, I don't know if it's the, the, the way to word it is, is more accurate or a more, was there higher compliance this year than say in the peak of your compliance? And then does that change the data? Because one of the things that you were talking about with like the confidence interval and st- statistical analysis type stuff, yeah. like like in my profession, looking at that from like drug studies, is there something like that's statistical significance and then clinical significance? So something could, you know, meet your confidence interval or it could come within the the minutia of like making the study um, valid, but the, it might not look that exciting, but if, like you said, if you had a 20% harvest, uh, or 20% compliance and you had 80% of the people that didn't comply, 
and your confidence interval was off, even if you were trending up from an overall herd standpoint, you would never know how it was affecting the herd as a whole. So uh, data from that you've received now up to date versus say the past five years, um, what does it look like and what are you using that data for? Yeah. And I think, I think some of this is yet sort of to be determined because one of the things we've completely shifted how we're collecting information this year. This is, so this is year one of what is going to be a, you know, a future trend. Um, but making the shift from the old technique to the new technique, you know, we have to bridge that gap and understand like we're actually have to do both techniques for probably a couple of years to make sure that we understand what that relationship looks like. And, you know, as we're talking today, we haven't bridged that yet. I've got the numbers from the harvest reporting for this year, and I know what the old estimates look like, but, you know, it won't be until we do a survey this year, which is out and in Hunter's hands right now. It just takes time for that information to come back in and then be analyzed and and, and everything um, till we have a really better understanding. But, you know, to put, I guess, to put things into a little bit perspective, you know, the last couple of years, we've been estimating in Michigan, a a deer harvest around 400,000 deer for the state. And Michigan is uh, usually about top two and and maybe even top three in the country in total deer harvest. Um, We just have a lot of hunters. We're we're always behind Texas and and Texas is obviously a different animal. Um, And then we sometimes flip flop with places like Pennsylvania or maybe Georgia, I think, um, and Wisconsin's up there too. But um, we've always estimated about 400,000. This this past year through the new harvest reporting through year one, we had 300,000 deer reported through this new system. Um, so if, and this is, this is where the question comes in, I think you're trying to get at is if our previous estimates have been, you know, close or, or reasonably accurate, um, we saw about three out of every four deer that came through, which is, is a good, is a good number. Um, I think for year one, if our estimates in previous years were maybe running a little bit high, which our status, uh, our, our survey specialist thinks probably they're probably a little bit high um, based on, I guess, what he knows about sampling and whatnot. He's way smarter than me to be able to explain this. Um, then we probably saw more out of than three out of every four deer. So, and, and we'll, we'll figure what, out what that looks like. And, you know, it's possible that I guess we could have even underestimated in the past, but um, you know, we're, we're really starting a new trend line moving forward because of this new system. Uh, while trying to bridge this gap a little bit between the new and the old systems. And so from that outside of the, the survey that's um, sent out like the old paper surveys, um, what is being done for like multiple tags, right? So I bought a combo tag and two doe tags and I know a lot of guys did that. I know guys that buy 10 doe tags because they can. Um, But then you, you know, that hunter reports three deer or one deer or whatever. Um, I know like Idaho, Colorado, I think maybe Wisconsin, like I'll get an email that says like, what did you see? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, whether I fill those out or not, you know, is, you know, you're still, you still have that same barrier. Um, But is there any sort of exit interview? And it seems like, it would be 
easy enough. I mean, it would be a pain in the butt for all of the Walmart employees, I guess, um, to put it on when they ask you, are you going to hunt migratory birds? Are you going to hunt this? Like they could say, Hey, you bought five tags last year. How many deer did you shoot? You know, two. And you could have a, a digital reporting on the back end. That was a barrier of entry to the next year's tag or something. Yeah. So if, if I understand you correctly, so the harvest reporting right now, the way it's set up is only, you're only required to jump into that system if you were successful. And I think that's a little bit different than some states where, you know, as long as you get a license, you know, you've got to, you know, report, you know, through your, you know, your, your season activities at some point, whether you were successful or unsuccessful in Michigan, the way we have it set up is you only report if you're successful and if you're unsuccessful, um, you know, you don't have any legal requirement to report, but so when we do these surveys, these paper surveys, um, we have opinion questions based on that. And we can't incorporate that question into the harvest reporting without requiring unsuccessful hunters. You know, we need, we need unsuccessful hunters uh, responses as well, because otherwise we have a biased data set. So that's, that's how we try to get around that. You know, we, we do ask questions for successful Michigan hunters at the end of the survey. Sometimes it varies. You get like a random question. I don't know if you, if you reported more than one deer, you may have gotten, you may have noticed that there were two different questions at the end compared to your first year and your second year. Um, and that's again, through a survey design that people way smarter than me have put together. But some of those other opinion pieces, um, like we've historically asked, they have to remain on that harvest survey unless we're requiring all hunters, even unsuccessful hunters to go through and, and report, which, which has not been a requirement for us now. Um, you know, we, we have avoided asking questions at retailers, you know, at the time of license purchase, just like you get, like your, like you said, your, your, your migratory, you know, waterfowl or game bird, uh, you know, like hip number type stuff. We've avoided that because we don't have control over that survey instrument. And, you know, the fear is that there's a, you know, that there's a couple of hot topics in, in Michigan that you get somebody who uh, doesn't just doesn't ask that question because it's not known. And maybe they're just answering the question um, how they feel it should go. So, you know, anything that is involved with hunter opinion, we as the agency want to have control over that survey instrument. Um, so we know we can trust the results, essentially. Sure. Now, uh, speaking, (laughs) speaking of, uh, trusting the results and I feel (laughs) like, um, the, the public, uh, in their trust or lack of trust of the DNR, one of the things online, I think in just about every forum that I had seen Facebook, whatever, um, along with, conversations with individuals and everything one of the big hang-ups for this reporting um was that um location question and drop a pin um and then whether that's going to be public record now i know from going in and checking in cwd deer if you want to go get your deer uh to the check-in station like they have a plot book and you put your little pencil mark and and where you um shot that deer but now we have like you know with the technology that we have um you know you put that 
you know, blue dot on that map, now that can be grid coordinates or whatever. And so if that becomes public record and you've got these mining companies, like, you know, one of our sponsors, Spartan Forge, is taking basically every bit of public record data that they have and compiling it into this uh, like artificial intelligence or things like telling where deer harvested on what day, etc. You know, what is happening with that data and is it protected in any way or is that all public record? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would agree of our new harvest reporting program uh, that I guess it's like a Google map that we had on there that the pin drop that we called it was the one that received the most criticism. And I guess, I guess, let me, let me back up when we were developing what to ask uh, on this survey instrument. We, we talked about this a lot and we settled on the pin drop and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you several reasons why we decided to do that. Um, one, you know, going into this and, you know, I know you've got a lot of listeners that have, I'm sure different opinions about deer diseases, um, whether it's chronic wasting disease, which is the big one, but here in Michigan, we also have bovine tuberculosis and we, have the unfortunate distinction, I think, think of being the only state that has that in its wild herd. Um, but uh, our our thought process there is that we wanted to integrate disease surveillance into harvest reporting, knowing that not every hunter is going to care or even be asked about you know disease surveillance for their deer. But we wanted to incorporate that so there is sort of a seamless transition for those individuals that do submit their deer and how our laboratory staff receives those samples and can check things out and make sure that, you know, the, they get that um, fine scale data that you were talking about, which is important for disease surveillance. So that was, that was one of the pieces we wanted to think ahead and do that. Um, not only for the testing standpoint, but also from a potential like notification system. So, you know, not knowing what county you hunt it, hunt in, say uh, there's a, a new case of, of chronic wasting disease or new case of bovine tuberculosis. It's never been found in, in that particular area. And you go and you harvest a deer that's relatively close to that. You know, we could incorporate a message going out to hunters basically saying, Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. You know, you indicated you shot this deer in this location. Our records indicate that a new case of CWD or new case of TB was found very close within this area. If this is important to you personally, you know, here are some places where you can go get your deer checked. So we viewed it as this, almost like a real-time, I don't want to say like emergency communication system, but like a communication piece for, for disease surveillance or, or any specific local issue. So 
uh, with deer. Uh, so we viewed that as, as important too. I thought it would be interesting as well to get better fine scale data, uh, not only um, at the at the county level, but within the county level or, or deer management unit level, because if a lot of states have counties where we know that deer are not distributed evenly across that county. Um, in fact, I think that's probably pretty rare. You know, you've got some counties that you've got a lot more deer that we know that's in the southern half of the county than the northern half or east versus west or whatever. But when you get things that are that discriminate within a county, you can start to mask trends that might be occurring within a county. Um, if like the, in the, in the, in the, the deer poor part of the county, um, whereas the, the deer rich part of the county might be, you know, increasing up. So let me try to rephrase that, you know, um, you say you can have the Northern part of the county declining in deer numbers and the Southern half increasing, but if you're only collecting data at the county level, you might not be able to see those trends and how they are changing within a county. If we can get fairly reliable location data, we can change how we view deer management to a much finer scale. And then if we start to see those trends happening, we can carve out what I would call smaller units from a management standpoint, be a little bit more conservative with our recommendations to try to boost our deer herd or, or change, change it in a different direction. So I think there was a, um, I think there's an opportunity there if people are willing to think that way and, and provide, you know, closer scale data than what they're, they're, we're, we typically or historically do. And then I think your last question is, is that, is that data safe or, you know, is it, is it secure? And the final reason we chose the point data is because in Michigan, in our, our state statute, uh, the exact location of either game or harvested game is protected from a Freedom of Information Act request um, when it's a point level or a GPS level data. So if you shot a really great deer uh, on your property and you've got, say, a uh, a neighbor who you don't agree with that says, there's no way this guy shot that deer where he did, blah, blah, blah. I've seen that deer on my property all the time. I want to find out where this guy shot his deer and request that record. We can easily deny it. And we're completely protected by that by state state statute. Um, so the point level data is secure and we can avoid that. Uh, we can sort of, I guess, reject freedom of information act request when it's a point level data. Now, if he, if that request came in and said, I want to know what township or, you know, quadrant of the county you, you recorded that in because it's not a point level data, it's not protected. So we'd have to give that information away. And maybe that's not a big deal for folks. If it's a six by six square mile area, you know, I don't know, but the point level data we know is secure and, and at least from a FOIA standpoint. Yeah. I think the, the concern is, is, um, you know, the the more advanced these hunting apps are getting and creating both algorithms to predict deer movement and and hunter, like so there's another one out there that kind of shows hunter density data by like cell phone pings and things like that. Um you know, combining those two and then going back to your other um you know scenario like 
let's just say I picked one of the bucks that got killed and, you know, um, like you could say, like if you used Indiana as an example, that, uh, you know, state record buck, like the number two buck in the, in the, in the yeah. country right now, um, you could know that guy's name and then, you know, you've got his name, his license number, you know, everything all the way down is now, uh, somewhere saying, okay, I did the, he did this, but, um, and I, I think that's the the main concern now is that data being used, uh, in other ways too, to show, to show anybody else like deer density or like, I know one of the things that, that always comes up is like insurance companies and things like that. But then another thing that kind of popped into my head when you were talking about that, cause I, I mean, it, it's probably not your like jurisdiction or realm, but for like enforcement or like surveillance from like a poaching type standpoint. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's no intent for enforcement associated with that location because it's, it's completely map error, you know, whether, you know, there's, there's nobody that's going to be checking like, you know, okay, they dropped a map here, you know, yesterday, I'm going to go in there and see if there's bait on the ground or if that's actually where, you know, there's, there's no enforcement because, you know, the map, the point that you drop on a map isn't necessarily a hundred percent accurate. Like you'd have to really be good or even lucky to get it at the exact spot that you harvested the deer. Um, so there's, there's really no enforcement piece to that. Um, you know, the only thing that we've created so far from, from those point locations is what, what I would call like a heat map of, you know, where the deer are being harvested. So it doesn't have the exact point locations into it. It's just more of a, a blended density, you know, across the state. And it's, it's exactly what you would think, you know, we've got a lot more, I guess, heat or a lot more harvest in our, our Southern part, our agricultural part of Michigan, as you work your way north, you know, the, the harvest declines quite a bit. Um, and then from a, <laughs> we, we always get a lot, you know, talk here about insurance, you know, and stuff like that. I, I can tell you in 16 years of, of Midwestern deer management, I've never had one conversation with a insurance agent at all. And, you know, they're, they're, I don't know, maybe there's people that that's surprising. Maybe there's people that don't believe that. And I can't like disprove that I haven't having those conversations, but it's, it's just not a thing, you know, it's just not something, at least at my level. And, and I'm fairly certain it doesn't exist at, at even our executive level. Um, cause I think that there's probably risk models built into insurance agencies and they just look at trends and they just adjust their premiums, you know, how they want. It doesn't really matter. There's no pressure that's applied to game agencies whatsoever, uh, to, to make things different, but, uh, we've, we've not been, asked or requested for any of that information. And, and even if they did, that point level data is, is completely uh, protected. So because of that, I mean, I guess it kind of is point level, but if it, if it was kind of like blended together or whatever, that uh, heat map, is that public record? And could that be broken down into uh, buck and doe harvest? I think uh, so the way those requests work, is that if it's a product that we have generated and it's not exempt from FOIA, then it can be requested and, and, and submitted. So, you know, the, the heat map that I was referring to, you know, our, our, our staff put that together. Um, 
you know, if, if we were to just keep that internally and, and someone knew about it, they could request that and that would be a figure and it didn't have exact locations and we would have to give that. Now, we publicized that map. That was one of the reasons that we did it was sort of a, an educational piece, like look look at what our, our, our program's doing. Um, but they cannot request things that we haven't generated. So we haven't generated like a, a buck harvest density heat map or a, a, a doe or antlerless harvest uh, heat map. So they can request that, but the product doesn't exist. Um, and, you know, we don't have to develop something um, based on a request if, if we haven't already done so. So that's how those work. And so, you know, uh, the information that uh, we see, and I think most hunters look at, they just look at harvest data and they look to see, you know, whether it's declining or, you know, what the buck to doe ratio is as far as like harvest. And it's actually nice to be able to see it now on that, on the map where you're seeing, sure. you know, per county bucks and does, et cetera. Um, but, on your side of it, like what is the state of Michigan doing with that data? How are they using that um, year over year? And then I guess at the same time, like what are we managing for in the next two, 10 and 20 years? Like what, what are the goals or what are, what are we using this information to get to essentially? Yeah, no, those are great questions. Um, I'm going to try to remember all of them there. Cause there's, different, different trails and paths I can take on each one. Um, you know, primarily, uh, what we're looking at too, is the same thing. I think that hunters are looking at it's trends, um, you know, not only within, within a, a, a unit or a County, but, um, you know, you know, obviously certainly across the state and across the region. The other thing we're trying to do is looking at the impacts of our, regulation recommendations. So when we make a change, um, and I will, I'm trying to think of one here that I can give you. How about uh, a couple years ago in Southern Michigan, where we have a lot of deer and it's largely agricultural, we changed our muzzleloader season to essentially um, make it legal for any legal firearm to be used. So Essentially, what we did was created a second firearm season rather than a muzzleloader specific season. And, you know, there's a host of reasons why we went that way. We're trying to shoot more. We're trying to shoot more deer. We're trying to shoot more antlerless deer, um, trying to reduce the population in some of those areas because we've been seeing increasing trends. We looked at the success rate data from all of our seasons and saw that muzzleloader season success rate was way lower than any other season, including the late antlerless firearm season, which occurs after the muzzleloader season. So, you know, we're, our thought process is how can we get more hunters to be successful during that season? And, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's just a function of weapon choice. And if we gave them an additional array of, of weapons or firearms that they can use instead of limiting them to uh, muzzleloaders, which they still can use, um, you know, will that move the needle at all? So we've had that now for a couple of years and we start looking at the data and seeing like, okay, did success rates change? Did antlerless harvest increase? Did buck harvest increase? Because that's not what we're necessarily trying to accomplish. Um, you know, are more hunters participating in that season or did it drive hunters away? So there's things like that, that we're trying to piece together when we look at a lot of this data, you know, we look at 
our recommendations and we try to defend our recommendations based on the direction that our deer management is trying to go. And then we try to evaluate the impact of that recommendation. And in a lot of instances, um, you know, I can tell you that uh, a lot of hunters think the impact is probably greater than what the actual impact is. So another regulation change that we made uh, throughout most of time here in Michigan, uh, hunters could max out at about five antlerless licenses per individual. And we had a couple of areas that were like 10 and then it got really confusing from a law enforcement standpoint, like this County, you can buy 10 or, or use 10, this County, you can only use five, this County, you can use 10 again. Uh, so we made it 10 for every, every part of the state. Um, and there's certainly parts of the state, like the upper peninsula where you're limited, we have limited, uh, antlerless opportunity to, to, um, harvest an antlerless deer anyway, but in, throughout our lower peninsula, um, hunters can purchase up to 10, go out and shoot 10 uh, antlerless deer in really any County. And I got a lot of questions and concerns about that, especially in some of our Northern counties right away saying like, Oh my God, like we can't handle 10 deer per hunter. Like it's just not possible. And they're right. Those, those herds can't handle that, that level of harvest if everybody did that. And then you start looking at the data and you realize that like, 0.1% of hunters are shooting more than five. And it's more like 3% of hunters are shooting more than, I think it's like two or three antlerless deer. Like it's a, it's a completely um, superficial change essentially when you make something like that to try to simplify rec recommendations or, or regulations, sorry. Um, but you know, because we, we look at, at the, at the impact of it, but on the surface, it looks like you know, the agency just wants to mow all the deer down. And that's, we would not make that recommendation if that was going to be the outcome. So before we get into the, like the other questions where, um, I don't know, I guess I just, uh, maybe, maybe I'm, uh, jaded or maybe like it's the fear of government or, or whatever, but I think it's, uh, I, th I think that a lot of people would have these exact same feelings and thoughts is like when you give up something like that, it's hard to go back from. So like, because you're at 10 licenses now across the state, um, and it does get confusing year to year, especially for the, I guess I would say like, not the diehard hunter, the guy that just goes and buys tags or, or, or mm -hmm. whatever, um, from like that tag standpoint. But then again, like having a, you know, uh, what is it like a 45 day rifle season or, or whatever, because of uh, the muzzleloader regulations. And I know it's not that long because it's in different counties and whatnot, but um, how difficult is it to, to go backwards? And is that something that gets talked about a lot from your side? Yeah, no, absolutely. It gets talked about, um, you know, I think in a lot of instances we're, we've liberalized a lot of our regulations because we're trying to, especially I would say in Southern Michigan, uh, we're trying to reduce the deer herd um, in almost, in almost every County. There's a few where I think we're, we're good at being stable, but, uh, and then a lot of counties in Northern Michigan um, we're, we're in the same boat. I don't think quite the same degree. Like we don't need like a, a drastic decline in, in some of those counties, but 
Um, you know, we're, we're still trying to reduce deer numbers. So when we make these recommendations, you know, from our standpoint, we try to use data to defend our recommendations on everything. And in order to do that, you have to have some sort of metric or um, thing that you're measuring to show that you're being successful. And if you can reach that threshold of success, then you can at least recommend for it to come back. Now, you know, I don't know if we'll get into this or not, but most uh, game management agencies, and certainly here in Michigan and where I was in Indiana, the DNR doesn't have the authority to make that change. They only can make the recommendation and then it goes to either a commission or a board or each state's called a little bit different, but it's basically a, a separate independent entity that hears that and uh, that, that data that's being provided by the agency and then weighs that with public comment or economic impacts or whatever, whatever it may be. And then they either approve or reject or ask the agency to change the recommendation uh, to try to account for that. So it's kind of a checks and balance system. But, you know, from our standpoint, uh, absolutely, that if the impact was too great or we erred in, in terms of like we, we thought we would do this and it would, it would reduce the herd by 20% or 10% and it actually went way beyond what we wanted to do. Uh, that data would drive that decision and those conclusions. Uh, and then we would make that recommendation to change it. And so I believe in Michigan, right? It's the NRC or like the national resource commission or committee or something like that. Natural resources commission. Yeah. NRC. And who is on that? And that, this is like, kind of like one of those questions where, you know, it's not a, it's not an awesome you, you, you probably can't answer it like appropriately. I don't know, but like the DNR doesn't necessarily have to agree with them and they make, they are ultimately the governing body or they make the rules. Yes. Uh, yes. So who makes up that and are there, and it, I mean, I guess it, it goes back to a little bit of like the insurance companies or whatever, but are there lobbyists affecting these decisions you know, at a governmental level or whatever, is that, you know, like who's, who's writing the checks, who is in charge of, uh, of these things. And can it be, um, I guess politicized, like, um, based on, you know, who's in office of governor, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Man, those are, those are good questions. <laughs> tough questions though. Um, so, in Michigan, I'll start off by saying our Natural Resources Commission is a seven-member panel, um, and those individuals are on that uh, commission because of a, a governor appointment. So it's either our current governor or previous governors, uh, because the terms, you know, uh, big terms can be expanded or extended. Um, I would say that over the over my duration with this, with this agency here in Michigan, I believe everyone has had some sort of tie-in to, um, you know, some sort of conservation organization. Um, we've had a couple individuals who had more of an agricultural background, I would say, um, and maybe less from a natural resources background, but 
you know, those things are so intertwined. Um, like I, I kind of understand why some of those appointments would certainly be made, but, um, everyone that I've, every commissioner that I've spoken with, um, has, has a passion for the outdoors and natural resources. Um, these positions are unpaid, so they're completely voluntary. Um, now obviously they, you know, get their travel covered for and whatnot, but, um, it's very much a difficult job and a thankless job. Um, I would say so, um, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I agreed with all the decisions that these the commissioners have made over over the over recent years. Um, I, I that's that's not true, but I I believe that you know in certainly most if not all instances their their hearts in the right place in terms of wanting to do what is best or what is right for the resource. Um, but of course there are. I think I'd be lying to say if there weren't sort of external influences and I, I, I can't speak to like monetary or anything like that. Sure. You know, I, 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 I haven't seen any evidence of that certainly, but um, you know, there are, there are individuals that certainly show up and, and maybe have agendas or, you know, get, get very familiar and, and have discussions and not saying that those commissioners are influenced by those discussions or not, because, you know, we provide the data uh, the public hears comments on, uh, you know, they hear comments from the public um, on, you know, how this change would or wouldn't affect uh, the resource. And then the commissioners have to make a decision. Um, and a lot of times these are very difficult decisions where um, just like a deer regulation, you, you can't make a, a decision and everybody's going to be happy. You're going to upset one person uh, and, and please someone else. And that's, that's a really difficult spot to be in, especially for someone who's essentially a volunteer. Yeah. Going back to like the other question, as far as like what they're managing for in the next two years, 10 years, 20 years, when you're managing for the resource, uh, and we're talking, let's say we're talking specifically about the resource of, uh, you know, Michigan's white-tailed deer, Michigan's white-tailed deer herd, what is the benefit, you know, what is in the best interest of the, the, the resource from, I mean, if, if you were to have to define that, what is a, a healthy deer herd or what does it look like for any state, not necessarily the state of Michigan? And then how do you manage for that and how are they managing for that? Yeah, really good questions. Um, so we here in Michigan have a, a deer management plan that tries to outline some of the goals that we try to manage for. Um, you know, to, to boil it down, essentially, we're trying to manage for a sustainable and, and healthy deer herd um, and, and providing a maximum amount of recreation opportunities. Um, a lot of our decisions, and this might this might grind your gears. It might grind a couple of your listeners' gears. Is is a lot of times focused on conflict management. So we know we know what deer can do from a breeding perspective. Like their their biology, their their breeding behavior is is very well documented. We know that a deer herd can grow very quickly under certainly under ideal conditions. Um, and we also know that the main way that we reduce or manage that deer herd is through hunting opportunities and, and our hunters. Um, and we know that those hunters are declining. We just, hunters are aging out and we're not getting younger hunters involved is, is basically what it boils down to. 
So it's becoming harder and harder to, I don't want to say manage, but certainly like reduce deer population levels or kill enough deer where you're certainly seeing a, a really great population level impact, especially in those prime habitat or prime quality areas. Um, so that, that is one of the things that we generally focus on. I will tell you, and it's, it does bother me a little bit that the word, uh, or, or there's no mention in our deer management plan about, I guess, managing for like a quality experience or a quality hunt from our hunters side of things. And I know why it's like that. And that's because a quality experience is very subjective and individual, um, you know, based on your own personal values. So it's really hard to quantify that. But um, I do think that that's probably something that we don't, I'll say, emphasize enough with our management level decisions. So from that standpoint, and just looking at it, and I think it would be echoed by a lot of, um, you know, the the people who are, are down on, um, you know, the, the regulations here, the way that the herd is being managed, um, would be something not subjective would be like an age class verbiage Mm -hmm. in there. Um, but I don't think that you're recruiting new hunters with stacking up does as much as you would be for antler you know, antler size or an age class type thing. And I mean, you mentioned Texas and I think Texas has like, you know, a 14 inch spread type rules and it's got to have, I don't know, yeah. know that they necessarily have APRs and uh, you know, that's, you know, boggles my mind hunting in Michigan for my lifetime, trying to, you know, estimate on the <laughs> hoof, you know, distances between the ears, etc. Um, but it would seem that you would, it would take a couple of years, but you would be bringing in out of state hunters. You would have people seeing more, uh, larger animals taken. And I think, you know, social media has, uh, is very, uh, toxic in that sense of that. You're saying, okay, now where you just want to shoot big deer and you're, you're robbing, you know, some of the joy from the hunters, you know, whether it's their first hunt or their last hunt to saying you can't shoot that deer uh, is a difficult thing to say too. Um, but how is it being managed? Um, I guess from a resource standpoint as a monetization thing, because there's a lot of hundred dollars. I mean, I guess it could be argued when you move up to 10 doe tags, that's additional revenue. And if they don't shoot those deer, that you still got your money, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can see that argument. Um, you know, I think, I think the fact of the matter is nobody's, there are very few people that are even buying that many. Um, I, I guess in 2019, we did an analysis and we found out that 65% of hunters in Michigan don't even purchase an analyst license, like flat out don't even buy one. And our regulations at that time were such that if you wanted to, to hunt the firearm season or even the muzzleloader season with a, either a deer license or a combination tag, you couldn't shoot an antlerless deer at that time um, on those licenses. If you wanted to shoot an antlerless deer, you had to purchase an antlerless deer license. We look at this data and we're like, oh my God, like 
two thirds of the hunters aren't even purchasing. So like, no wonder our antlerless harvest is crap because like nobody's buying antlerless licenses. Everybody's focusing on antler deer. So one of the things that we did is um, we made those combination licenses and deer licenses, either sex during the firearm season. So, um, you know, I, the people that criticize the DNR for, you know, trying to do a cash grab, they, they don't really say, they don't bring up that example a whole lot. Maybe I'm sounding defensive here, but we kind of slid our wrists a little bit on antlerless license sales because we gave something to the hunters and in, in the fact that they don't have to purchase an antlerless license anymore. There's so much flexibility in our combination license in our lower peninsula. They don't have to purchase that. You know, this was a management level decision. We're trying to get them to shoot more antlerless deer um, rather than maybe being forced to take a, you know, a, a, a spike or a four point on like their last hunt. And that's the deer that came by and that's all their tags good for. Like this is an opportunity to have a little bit of flexibility in terms of how that, that, that license can be used from a management standpoint. So we're giving them the management and, you know, we, we, we kind of de- I don't know. What's the word? De-incentivize, de-incentivize. I don't know what that word is, but like, you know, there's no longer a need to really focus. If you just want two deer, you don't need to purchase an antlerless license. So, um, you know, from a monetization standpoint, I, I try to not focus on some of that stuff because I, I try to stick with, you know, what I know, and that's just deer biology and management. Um, I can tell you that outside of fishing license sales, like deer licenses bring in I think the most money. So, so it's, the, it's, it's the money maker for our wildlife division and how our agency is structured and is constructed is that we have a wildlife division where we do all of our, our game and non-game, you know, terrestrial management. We've got a fisheries division that does obviously a lot of the aquatic management. Uh, so when you think about what's important to our specific division where I'm housed in for terrestrial management, game management, non-game management, it's deer licenses. Like, and, and we can't, Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. We obviously need that funding because we we get very little funding through um, like state legislature. You know, everything is largely based on license sales and what we call uh, PR match. So Pittman Robertson, like it's the excise tax that um, is based on how many hunters you have in your state. And we get each state's allocated a certain amount for that. Those are two of our big funding pieces. And that goes from the staffing standpoints. Uh, that hire our biologists, our technicians, our assistants that manage and oversee our state game areas that uh, do a lot of the work that, that we have. It's, it's, our, it's our statisticians, it's our disease folks. You know, uh, there's a lot of money that's going into the vis- division because of 
um, deer management, basically. So the, the analogy that I make is that, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with like college football or, you know, collegiate athletics, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of put like deer management as like the college football. That's like the moneymaker piece that goes to support all the other programs, just like college football brings in so much money to university. And that money goes to support, you know, the lacrosse team and the the baseball team and all the other stuff. So, but so like uh, understanding that again, there's that uh, echo chamber and the pr- people that I talk to, you know, are, you know, like-minded individuals or, or whatever, you know, you've said that you've got a, a declining hunter numbers. So that's mm-hmm. declining license sales. That also is declining Pittman Robertson dollars because your hunter numbers are going down. Um, then ultimately that's going to lead to more um, of a decline in, you know, harvest because you don't have the hunters and you don't have the success rate. So from like a hunter recruitment standpoint, like what are, are you seeing um, changes in license sales and maybe like now you're able to see a little bit more um, directed uh, harvest data in like the antler, not the antlers, but the APR zones um, in these areas where, you know, guys maybe have an opportunity to shoot bigger deer or have maybe like uh, change their thought process. And what does that look like for statewide implementation of something for age class or antler growth? Yeah. So um, when you you talk about antler point restrictions and, and you talk about age class management, like that's, that's the tool right there. Like that's, that's what, if it's developed correctly, and like we've we've checked over a million deer in our state's history, so we have a pretty good understanding of like what it would need to what it would need to take to protect over fifty percent of like the yearling bucks, which is what an antler point restriction is designed to do. Um, we uh, that that's so that's the regulation. Sorry, I lost my tra- train of thought there. Uh, that that's what it is, and where it's established, it's it's widely popular. Um, you know, like the people love it and they see almost instant results. Um, if not by year two, by year three, there's, there's certainly, I think frustration, uh, exhibited in year one because, you know, I, what are some of the things I hear? Like I I saw a quick glimpse of the deer, but I couldn't tell if it had brow tines or not. And I had to pass it up. And that's partly what the APR is meant to do is to give you pause or even, even to let legal bucks sometimes pass because you just can't confirm that, you know, it has the right number of points. Ultimately it's meant to protect over 50% of the yearling bucks. Um, and like I said, once they get past that yearling stage, they get to two and a half. And at least in Michigan, that's pretty satisfactory for a lot of hunters just to start seeing some nice, you know, eight points running around. Um, sometimes you get to 10 and certainly once you get to two and a half, they the likelihood of them getting a three and a half expands even greater because, uh, deer wise up, I think quite a bit in their, in their second year compared to a yearling buck running around. Um, but we're still seeing declines in hunters in those APR areas. You know, I think if, if we were seeing a completely converse trend, whereas like our non-APR areas, we're seeing massive hunter declines and in APR areas, we're seeing either stable hunter numbers or increasing hunter numbers. 
it would be a slam dunk regulation, right? That at least it's like, we've got to expand this everywhere. It's working there. We've got to do it everywhere. And we're not seeing, we're not seeing at least those trends from, from the areas that we have. Um, I'll say that the antler point restriction areas seem to do a little bit better in terms of balancing their harvest um, compared to our non-APR areas. Um, so when I say balanced harvest, I'm saying close to a 50-50 split between antlered and antlerless deer. And that's, for Michigan, that's pretty good. Like We don't typically see that and when you get into our non-APR areas. Um, it's usually like seven seven antlerless deer to 10 antler deer. So it's a lot, it's a lot more skewed. We have a lot more buck centric harvest in a lot of other places where I think we're managed a little bit more in balance in our APR areas. And that's, that, that is worth noting. I think that's a positive outcome. So from like a, a hunter, like boots on the ground type standpoint and these guys, I mean, you know, there's the Facebook groups and there's all these uh, things that um, are one buck or APRs or, or whatever. And where for us as the hunter, you know, the age old argument is, well, if I don't shoot him, my neighbor's going to shoot him. So I'm just going to shoot him. There's no rule saying that I'm, I'm not going to do that. You know, I don't have to, so I'm going to shoot whatever I can. What can we do as hunters, like boots on the ground in these non-APR areas that want to see age class, but are faced with that? And I understand that, you know, those deer, that doesn't always happen. The neighbor doesn't always, you're giving your neighbor too much credit, but at the same time, it does happen. So outside of just not shooting deer. What, what do you do? Cause from a management standpoint, like that's not what you want. You, you need, you need harvest numbers, right? Yeah, no, I'd love to see a lot more does being killed and a lot more bucks being passed. I think that's gonna, I think that's going to increase everybody's, um, experience when they're out hunting. Um, no, no doubt. And in, in a lot of the, in a lot of the state. Um, so when I first came up to Michigan, this was back in gosh, late 2014, early 2015, the one of the things that like blew me away that I was super impressed with, not only within the the agency and how much they supported this, but how much hunters took this amongst themselves was this this idea of like a a hunting cooperative, if if you're familiar with that term. And, And basically all it is, is just getting a bunch of local landowners together and basically developing their own management plan, knowing that you know, this is what I want, but I only control like 40 acres, 80 acres, um, finding like-minded individuals, getting on the same page and trying to break down those walls between like, if I don't shoot it, my neighbor's going to shoot it. Well, hell go over there and talk to your neighbor and like, get on the same page. Like, listen, man, I'm not going to shoot this deer if you don't shoot this deer. And then in two years, it's going to be a great looking buck running around here. Hopefully. Uh, and if you get enough of those people together, and there are numerous examples of success stories in Michigan, you know, all over the state where those cooperatives have led to really, I guess, I mean, better deer hunting and honestly, better, better neighbor relationships too. And that's the thing that blew me away coming up here is that, you know, so many folks took it upon themselves to almost take control of their localized management. And of course you don't get everybody in the area. 
you don't get everybody in the in the section or, or whatever. But if you get enough people that buy into that, and you know they have after season sort of banquets or get-togethers where they're sharing jerky and snack sticks and all kind of stuff, bologna. Um, going into the season, they're talking about and sharing photos of what they have. Like, look, I got this great buck, and it's like. Oh my God, I got that great buck on my property too. And I'm two miles away. So, I mean, you can see these patterns develop and, and start talking about like which bucks are really great. And, and, and I guess getting excited for other members in your co-op who see success with their harvest, especially of a good deer, like a good mature deer, rather than feeling down or glum that like, oh, that guy shot that buck, you know, because you're all working together towards a direction. And yeah, you might not get the buck that you want that year, but if everybody's on the same page and buys into the same management philosophy, your turn's going to come up one year and you're going to get a much better buck than what you had before that cooperative even existed. So you mentioned coming up here from Indiana, Indiana's now uh, a one buck state. And you said you started there uh, a little after that had, had uh, been implemented. Um, what did it take or what was the tipping point for Indiana to get that um, passed or implemented? Yeah. Wow. You're tapping into some old, old long-term memory stuff here. Um, so the thing with Indiana, Indiana became a one buck state in 2002. So they've had, they've been operating under a one buck rule now for gosh, 20 years. Um, prior to that, and this is, I think the part that some folks who may not be familiar with Indiana and their history are, are aware of, um, their two bucks in Indiana before the one buck rule became in place was split up between seasons. So you had to have one buck in archery season and one buck in firearms or, or muzzleloader season. So the only way you could shoot two bucks is if you were what I would call a multi-season hunter, like bow and firearms. Um, if you were a single season hunter, you were only operating under uh, a one buck rule anyway. But there was a push, as, as I recall, and as it was told to me, like I said, I got there probably about five years after uh, that one buck rule was instituted. Um, it really originated from what I would call stakeholder groups, like deer specific management groups that wanted to make a change. Um, these groups in particular were not necessarily supportive of antler point restrictions because they didn't feel like they wanted to, I guess, tell everybody what they should or shouldn't shoot and leave it up to everybody to make their own, you know, decisions on what they want to take or what they feel happy with taking. So they wanted to go to a one buck rule. And ultimately that regulation was developed and passed through their, their commission um, and then after it became, uh, you know, established, uh, the surveys that were done through Indiana showed that <laughs> there was no going back. I mean, hunters, hunters loved whether it was an actual outcome based on, you know, the direct change with the one buck rule or just sort of a correlation in that Indiana was just starting to blow up in terms of, you know, low hunter numbers, deer herd was starting to mature and people were getting selective anyway. Um, people attributed some of the management to the one buck rule and they loved it. I mean, it was like 70 plus percent support if I can recall correctly. Um, and I would not be surprised if that level of support um, remains today down there. So from a, 
biologist standpoint, like how does, did it fit better, um, in Indiana for their overall herd health than it does in Michigan or what, what's preventing Michigan from doing something similar? Yeah. So it's a good question. Um, I guess from a biologist standpoint, I guess I would, I would, I would want to know what was the true impact of the regulation. Did it, did it actually result in fewer antler deer being harvested or did it just increase hunter selectivity? You know what I'm saying? And um, I mean, I kind of know that answer because I can tell you right now that Indiana kills more bucks now under a one buck rule than they did before the one buck rule took place. I think there's probably changing population level impacts associated with that too. Um, So it's not just a result of the one buck rule, but I don't think you're saving bucks. I think you're saving, I think you're changing hunter mentality with, with this regulation. Um, And, you know, I think that would, I think that's similar to what happens in Michigan. So in Michigan, um, we have been seeing increasing percentages of hunters taking two bucks. You know, uh, when I first got here, it was about 4% of hunters take two bucks. Uh, last year, I think it was about 7%, which still doesn't sound like a lot, but. It's almost uh, doubled. That's almost double. I mean, that's a, that's a noticeable change in, in the trend. Um, still, when you, when you know what percentage of hunters are taking a second buck and you know how many hunters you're estimating you're starting with that are either buying licenses or estimate in the field, you've got an estimate of what number total bucks are second bucks, especially when you have a total buck harvest. And it turns out we shoot about 220,000 bucks in Michigan a year, at least the past couple of years. And the total number of second bucks is about anywhere between, I would say, 35 and 38,000. So, I mean, everybody's going to look at that through their own lens. I think, you know, out of 220,000 bucks, you know, is saving 38,000 bucks going to show an impact at a statewide level that has 58,000 square miles of land. Some people say, man, 38,000 bucks extra at, you know, an extra age on 38,000 bucks. That's going to, that's going to add up. That's going to show an impact. Other people are going to look at it and say, man, 38,000 bucks out of 220,000 and you've got nearly 60,000 square miles of land in Michigan. That's probably not going to make that much of an impact. I think the challenge with the one buck rule is, and I'm not saying it can't be done. And I actually think it's a, a great regulation because I think it's a great way for hunters to honor like the buck that they shoot. Like, you know, like if you're going to release an arrow or shoot a gun, like on a buck, you should be pretty proud of that buck, whatever you choose to shoot. And that could be, it could be a spike. It could be a, a, a little sick basket rack, six pointer. Obviously it could be a monster, but like whatever you decide to shoot, you're proud of it. And that's your buck for your year. And I think there's a lot of. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. 
Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Personally, I think there's a lot of value and like honor in that, um, if, if, if I'm speaking candidly. I think the challenge is by statute, we have to sell a combination license. We have to offer an opportunity to shoot a combination license, right? Uh, to sell that. I don't know what I said. You have to, you have to be able to sell a combination license. If you only have a one buck rule, that means the other tag for that has to be antlerless deer. And right now there are parts of the state where um, a lot of people are very uncomfortable with taking an antlerless deer. And I'm thinking of like a lot of the, the Northern reaches of the upper peninsula. So what do you do with the one buck rule in parts of the upper peninsula uh, when you have to sell a combination license? Are you going to just have people eat that tag and not take antlerless deer? Are you charging them now $40, which is the cost for two tags and a combination license, the opportunity to shoot one buck? Like it's, it becomes a little bit more challenging to apply that regulation across a state that has a lot of variability. Um, so that's one of the, the major, I think, barriers to doing a one buck rule in Michigan. In Southern Michigan, it would be pretty straightforward, but, you know, developing a tag structure that's not complicated and still applicable to the entire state becomes a little bit more challenging. Yeah. I, I don't know. I can see that. I I have my own um, thoughts on like how I would see it being done. Um, just from a from a, a managing for age class um thing mm-hmm. um but it would seem like you could look at your your heat map data and look at your bucks harvested and then you could look at your second bucks harvested and look at the actual impact even extrapolated out for the UP or in northern Michigan or whatever and see how much of an impact that that did have because you've got lower deer densities up there in some of those areas and a lot more land and and ways between it see for me my my thoughts are even if you were going to charge the $40 for your uh, combo license but only give out one tag at a time um, and then your second tag is required to be four on one side instead of the way that it sits now, you could tag your first deer with your restricted tag and then shoot a spike on the last day of the season. Mm-hmm. And that I think kind of affords a little bit more opportunity for those deer that did make it most of the way through the season uh, to not become, yeah. to fall to somebody's rifle muzzleloader deal you know (laughs) yeah no of course um you know one of the cool things about the data that we have now we had um i started looking into this year with harvest reports how many individuals reported taking two bucks and you know of course you know there's this number is probably on the low end this is just what was reported i'm sure there's a lot of people that didn't report their either first buck or or both bucks we had about twenty three thousand people in michigan report taking two bucks and I think it was about either 85 or 86% of those individuals that reported taking two bucks uh, took them in what I would call the same county. So, you know, there's very few hunters who are moving different directions uh, or moving, you know, going up north or, you know, to a, someone else's place to shoot their second buck. So it does, 
I guess, help paint the picture in terms of what's happening on the landscape. I also know that it's kind of a 50-50 split for those hunters who are taking two bucks. Um, about half of them are taking both bucks in, in one season. And then granted, this is only one year worth of data. So that could be two bucks in archery season, two bucks in firearm season, like you the same season. The other 50% have, are multi-season hunters, and that's where they're taking their second buck. Um, and whether that's by choice or just by opportunity, you know, that we don't know yet. But, um, you know, there's, there's some interesting things that we're able to tease out with some of the, the new reporting stuff that we've never been able to answer before. And again, like back to the same question, right? Like, what are we managing for five years down the road? 20 years down, down the road. Like what, what does the healthy deer herd look like? Yeah. Um, you know, this is, this is a super generic, um, answer, but I guess I don't know how to answer it any other way. Um, our, our vision or my vision is to make sure that we have a deer herd that is in line or in balance with, you know, the available habitat. Um, we've got relatively balanced sex ratios and, you know, I don't know if you're ever going to get a, like a one-to-one true ratio because bucks just die at a faster rate than does, but, you know, certainly better than what we're experiencing now. Um, and then limiting some of the conflicts that's associated with maybe overabundant populations, whether it's, um, either maintaining or starting to reduce deer vehicle collisions, making sure that they're not having impact on agricultural crops, et cetera. Um, that's, that's the pie in the sky dream. You know, you've got, uh, a varied age structure, a balanced deer herd, um, that's in line with habitat. They're not re- causing regeneration issues, uh, or they're minimizing regeneration issues uh, in the forest They're minimizing, re- uh, crop damage in, 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 in the fields. Um, and of course you're always going to have deer getting bumped by cars, but you know, it's, it's certainly, you don't want an increasing trend in that. I, I don't want in 10 years deer to be viewed by specifically non-hunters as vermin. I don't want them viewed as, um, you know, I've heard all kinds of names, but I want them to be revered, not only by hunter, but hunters are always going to revere deer, but I want them to be revered by non-hunters as well, honestly. Um, so the way to do that, I think, is to keep hunters as happy as possible, engaged in hunting, which also means killing antlerless deer, which is not the sexiest thing to do sometimes. Um, but it's important from a management standpoint. And then, uh, yeah, just trying to, to keep keep things in balance with and uh, reducing the level of conflict. Okay. So I, I'm not going to get into the uh, CWD stuff because we could do that for, for two hours, but I do have some. Uh, <laughs> uh, so one of the things one of the guys brought up was, you know, when he goes out uh, fishing and he runs into uh fish and wildlife guy fishing the same stream, he's like, I'm in the, the right area. Like, you know, this guy's got all the data, he's got access to everything, and this is where he's fishing. So for Chad Stewart, like, if you were going to go and and hunt, are you looking to an APR zone? Are you looking for, like, the, the <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, w- w- what is it, you know, you, you've implemented all of these things, you've been instrumental in har- collecting all the data. 
Like, what is it that you're looking for when you're going to go out and spend the few days that you probably get during the season to, to hunt? Yeah, no, that's, that's a funny question. I mean, the, the easy answer, which is, I think the answer you don't want, and I'll, I'll give you, I think the answer you want and you tell me what I'm right. But the easy answer for me is just like somewhere close to home. So I can just get out and go and participate. Right. Cause I think I'm probably like a lot of hunters on here. Like I got a young family, I've got a working wife, you know, I mean, there's, we've got a high energy German short air pointer that needs like three walks or at least two runs a day type thing. You know, there's a lot of things that are competing for your time. And, you know, sometimes all you can do is just sneak out and just grab like a two hour sit in the woods, you know? Um, and for me, you know, it's, it's, I'm almost exclusively anymore a, a bow hunter. So that's, it's my favorite time to get out. It's when the deer for me are less pressured. And if I can just do that, that's what I'm happy with. Um, if you're saying, I don't, I don't think that's the answer you want. I think the answer you want is like, where are you? Like, if you could had unlimited time, no restrictions, where would you go in Michigan? Um, APR areas would be great. I think there's a whole different um, experience hunting some of those maybe bigger woods uh, bucks that are up north. I think that would be a really cool experience. If I'm just looking for, uh, I guess, like a trophy buck or, or, or to see a lot of deer, I'm staying in Southern Michigan. Honestly. Um, I think, I think you still have a lot of opportunities, um, in Michigan to see really good bucks, especially in places like you can get in that Oakland, Washtenaw, Jackson, Hillsdale County areas. Um, I think those are some great spots for not only deer total numbers, but, um, quality bucks too. Um, and then I've not done it yet. I've been meaning to do it, but it's just so, so far away. Uh, I think it would be fantastic to do some, some bigger woods deer hunting up in the UP and I've not done that yet. I wouldn't expect to see a lot of deer up there. I wouldn't have a lot of expectation to be successful, but you know, it's a, it's a different experience. You know, there's a different animal, you know, suite of animals up there. It's a different landscape uh, different, different woods that you're hunting, different sign that you're hunting. So, um, I would gain personally a lot of enjoyment out of those hunts with a much lower expectation of being successful, but just taking a different experience from it. And then for yourself, and this might be an unfair question, so I don't want to like step out of line, but when in your, in your job, in your profession, like what States or, um, what other, uh, like biologists or programs, do you look to and say, you know, I think those guys are doing a really good job, you know, in, in this state or, or, or that state, something that maybe you would aspire Michigan to be or work towards or, or something like that. Oh man. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a few States and, uh, but, but certainly if I don't name a state, it's not, it's not an indictment on certainly their program or their, their certainly their biologists, but um, you know, I have a ton of respect for the work that like, at least I know my counterparts do in, in, in Ohio. Um, they're, they're top of the line guys down there. And I think their um, their mindset and how they approach their job is, is really incredible. And uh, I know a lot of, I know a lot of, 
hunters in Michigan would like, uh, you know, like, like some of the things they go out of state into Ohio and see some things too. I know my home state of Pennsylvania, um, does some great work. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm biased on this one, but Indiana is a very small agency. Uh, my counterpart down there is very good at what they do. And, uh, I can't think of an agency that is at least a deer program that's that small and does more with it. Um, so, um, and then, you know, you've got some other states that, you know, are almost like destination states. If you want to, you know, whitetail hunt, especially look for like amazing, you know, trophy whitetails. Like, I mean, Iowa certainly comes to mind, uh, you know, um, you know, Nebraska does some great things. Um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of folks that do some pretty, pretty great things in a lot of states that are, I'm certainly envious of. And, um, you know, I'd be certainly honored if one of them said the same thing about Michigan. I don't know if that happens a whole lot, but, um, you know, Michigan has a quite a different reputation, but, uh, you know, we, we certainly work hard. And I guess like the inverse of that, not to say like, who's doing a bad job, but like who, who do you, what states, uh, managing for whitetail, um, do you think have a, a really difficult task? Ooh, um, man, that's a great question. Um, uh, man, you stumped me on that one. Um, you know, um, I, I think, I think the, from what I can tell, the agency does a great job. I know my counterpart, he's, he's fairly new in this state and he seems to be doing a great job, but, um, you know, I, I think, I think Wisconsin has a tough job with, with some of the stuff that they've got going on. And I, I guess I won't go into specifics, but, um, they certainly have some challenges. Um, and then I, again, I can't necessarily get into some of the details, but I know uh, a state like uh, West Virginia, after speaking to, to my colleague down there, has some sort of unique challenges as well um, in what they're dealing with. And, you know, I can maybe talk about that off, off record or off air, but, uh, you know, there are some, there are some definitely some challenging jobs and some challenging circumstances um, that, that I'm sort of aware of in those two states that, uh, would, would make it very difficult. And, and again, that's not to say that, um, you know, the, the people in those jobs are doing a great job. And certainly I think the agencies are doing a great job, but um, it, just some really challenging circumstances that I know they're dealing with. Well, I think it's important to, to kind of look at those things because, you know, as you know, from, I'd imagine in every state, like everybody's got a bone to pick with the, the, the resource <laughs> committee, the, the DNR yeah. and, and, and everything. So I think it's good to, to kind of a give kudos to the ones that, you know, you say, you know, you think they're doing a really good job. And, um, uh, and then the ones that have a tough job is like saying, Hey, you know, maybe cut chat a break here. Cause it's Michigan. Isn't the easiest either. I'm sure. <laughs> you know, I, I would, I would argue that, you know, again, I'm biased, but I've been doing this for 16 years. You know, we were talking offline beforehand, you know, deer management in general is really difficult because every change that you make as you know, you're, you're going to be either lauded for or, or almost crucified for. Um, so there's the joke amongst biologists is that, you know, you're doing a good job when everybody's mad at you a little bit, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of, and that's, there's a lot of truth to that. Like if you've got, 
one group that's really angry with you, then chances are you've got a group that's really, really happy with you. And that's, is that where you want to be? And I, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, you know, if you've got a regulation or a management program in place where everybody just kind of hates you a little bit, um, maybe you're, maybe that's the fairest way to proceed. Um, and that's, that's being the, the least biased as you can be is just your, everybody's mad at you. And I kind of say that tongue in cheek, obviously, but, um, there, there is a little bit of truth to that. So, uh, I just want to say, I appreciate you coming on and taking the time and, um, you know, answering questions. And like I said, I try to ask hard questions or questions that are, are not like where you can get anywhere else or you can just pick up a book and say, Oh yeah, it just says it right here. Um, but one of the questions that we always ask is like, what's your bow setup? So for your, you know, we're a bow hunting podcast. Like what's your, what's your bow arrows, broadheads, all that. Yeah, gosh. I, um, so I use, I shoot a, I shoot a Parker. Um, it's nothing, it's nothing fancy by any means. Um, actually it was a gift from my dad, gosh, years ago. And it's just been hard to upgrade, honestly, cause it's got a little bit of sentimental value to it. It's a Parker wildfire is what it's called. Um, you know, um, arrows are pretty generic, honestly. I, I couldn't even tell you what they are right now. I bought a lot of them years ago and they've always worked well, but, uh, my broadhead is a muzzy. It's an MX three. Um, picked it up, heard it was a great reputation and never had a problem with them. So if it's, if there's a problem with it, it's, it's, it's user, <laughs> it's me that that's resulted in it. So, um, you know, that's, that's, that's basically it. So are you uh, crazy? Uh, like mobile hunter, or do you hunt like preset stands? Preset stands, uh, almost exclusively. Um, and lately, what I've been doing is uh, I've been really participating in the, the area that I hunt has a an urban archery program. Um, so you know, instead of going to you know a, a remote area, I don't. I mean, I own like my own property on like less than an acre. So, you know, I'm not doing any hunting on my property. Um, I wish I had a lot more that I could tool around on, but um, I don't go to a game area uh, really anymore, but I've got access to sort of an urban archery program where their intent is to reduce deer. And this program does, Adam, they do such a phenomenal job, man. Um, They have a you know, preseason sort of information meeting that's catered with like pizza and wings and stuff like that. They give swag out. So I've got like little beanies and stuff, um, you know, socks that they give. I mean, just all kind of stuff throughout the season. Obviously you get, um, you know, deer management assistant program tags that the, the township gets from, from our agency distributes it to about a hundred hunters. Um, but here's, here's, here's how cool this, this program is they, they view their hunters as a resource, right. Uh, that, that provides a value and a service to the community so much so that they built a walk-in cooler on their township property for the hunters to bring their deer to. And now we have to donate our first deer, um, to a shelter basically. Um, so there is that requirement, but you can drop it off at the cooler. You can store your own personal cool 
deer in there if you want to, you know, just store it in there for a day and then bring it out and take it to a processor that maybe it's after hours or something. Um, but it's such a, it's such a, like a blessing to have, you know, a, a township or community that values archery hunting and views it as a service to the community. Um, I think that's, that's pretty cool. And I've just kind of grown in love with that, like program and that idea of doing some sort of community service. And it's really close to my house and I always see deer. Um, so that's always a plus too. So, um, I find it hard to get away from that setup and, uh, you do have to be a little bit more discreet because you're always around houses and, you know, getting a, a, an animal out of the field without drawing too much attention to it can be a little tricky and challenging sometimes. So you got to be a little stealthy, but, uh, never really had too many problems with it. And I just think it's a, a cool ideal that I wish more communities would adopt. That's awesome. I mean, that's really, really cool. We've talked to, you know, it's interesting guy. I would have expected you to say like the guys in like, um, you know, Virginia or DC would have like a problem uh, or have a tough job because of exactly that, you know, we're friends with the, yeah. you know, urban bow hunter, you know, yep. those guys over there and, uh, same thing, you know, shooting deer that end up in somebody's pool or, or something like that, like really tough, but that's awesome that we've got that and it's viewed in such a way. Um, but if, pe- if people have got questions, I mean, you're a pretty easy to, uh, access guy. If people have, uh, questions and we'll, we'll hold the hate mail and all that, but if they've got legitimate <laughs> questions and, and, and want to get a hold of you, what's the best place to, uh, to do that? Yeah, no. And I mean, honestly, that's part of my job is to answer hate mail too. So if that comes up, you know, I, I prefer that obviously people approach it from a, a position of curiosity rather than judgment. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm what's considered a public servant. So, you know, my email is public. It's, it's my last name, which is Stuart S T E W A R T my first initial C in the number six, because I'm apparently the sixth C steward in Michigan government. So Stuart C six at Michigan.gov is my email. I'm also pretty active on social media. I've got a Twitter account and I've got a Facebook account, um, both under the same names, um, and, uh, try to, disseminate various deer information as, as I think of it through those, those outlets. And I think maybe that's how we connected on, on one of those. So, um, yeah, I'm always, uh, willing to answer questions, certainly as time allows on, uh, anybody that reaches out to me. Awesome. Well, like I say, I, I really appreciate it. I think it's really, um, informative for, for people who maybe have this, uh, certain idea in their head of like what actually goes on in government versus, the the real thing so (laughs) yeah well thanks for having me i'm glad you reached out i really appreciate it really enjoyed it uh yeah i I enjoy the tough questions but i thought they were totally fair too and it's what people want to hear so and hopefully i didn't screw it around any too much hopefully i got you some answers that you wanted no it's great thanks so much thanks
want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.